Welcome to Cross Defense. This is Pastor Brian Wolfmuller of Hope Lutheran Church, your host for the next hour on this show, Cross Defense. Thank you for joining us. And if you're a regular here, thanks for being a regular, for tuning in for the conversation a week after week. You know this show uh, is considering theology and trying in one way or another to recover the great joy of theology. One of the ways that the devil tempts us in these gray and latter days is by tempting us to believe that theology is boring. I mean, of all things, to think that theology, to, st- to study and hear the very words of God, uh, the, the, to see unveiled to our ears the grace of God and the kindness of our Lord Jesus Christ, to say that that is boring, uh, that that is how the devil tempts us. Now, we think that that would be a losing proposition, but it turns out that it, he almost always wins that fight. And so we are fighting back against that temptation, recovering the joy the delight of the Lord's Word, uh, the the joy that comes from studying theology. Now, to do that for the last uh, few years, in fact, starting with uh, Pastor Jonathan Fisk, and then when I took over a few months back, we were uh, walking through Francis Pieper's Christian dogmatics and letting him uh, point us to the questions uh, and the answers that theology brings. Uh, But we're going to change things up uh, starting today, because I know that if you've been tuning in to hear Francis Pieper's dogmatics, that the thing you love the most is change. <laughs> so, so just what you've been hoping for, uh, wishing for, praying for a change in the format. Here, here's what we're going to try, and we're going to see how this works. Uh, I'm gonna. Uh, we have three segments in the show, and I'm going to try to take the first segment and talk a little bit about the doctrine, uh, something that's on my own mind, the scriptures, uh, something that I want to bring to you guys. And, and it'll be just you and me, you, the listener, me, the host, the talker, for the first segment. Then we're going to bring on another theologian for the last half of the show, and they are going to bring something to throw into the mix, something uh, to surprise me, and then I hopefully have something to surprise them. And then we're going to talk about it. And hopefully, in that conversation, we can consider what it is to uh, to be a Christian, to think like a Christian, to feel like a Christian, to listen and watch and engage in the world and the culture and the Scriptures themselves as a Christian. So that's what we're going to try. And we're glad to have you along for the ride. If you have questions or comments, please feel free. The best way probably to get those to me is through the Twitter, you know, the back eddy cesspool of Twitter. You can tweet at me at bwolfmuller on there, and you can find me that way as well. You can also send me notes and comments to the website. That's uh, wolfmuller.co, W-O-L-F-M-U-E-L-L-E-R.co, like Colorado. The, the thing I want to talk about in the first segment today is this great, uh, marvelous, f- fantastic, I can't think of enough good adjectives, a distinction that we have when we come to the Scriptures as Lutherans, and that is the distinction between the law and the gospel. Now, if you're a Lutheran and you're listening, you might be thinking, law and gospel, that's all I ever hear about. Now, if you're a not a Lutheran, you might, be he- you might hear that and say, law and gospel, what's that? I've never heard of it. And I want to tell you that that's, in fact, exactly how I was uh, growing up. I grew up in the liberal Lutheran church, the ELCA, and never heard of law and gospel. Uh, I spent most of my formative theological years, both in high school and in college, never heard of law and gospel. And it's been my own experience now that whenever I go to talk to people of other churches, uh, Catholic folks, uh, evangelicals, Methodists, and Episcopalians, and Charismatics, and I'll ask them this question, hey... Have you heard of this distinction of law and gospel? And they'll say, no, I've never, I, no, what are you talking about? So, so for, especially for you, I want to, 
I want to talk about this distinction. It's really uh, quite wonderful. And it it throws open the door. It turns on the light to let us understand the Scripture. In fact, I remember when I started to study theology, there was all of these great um, theological nuts that I simply couldn't crack. There were theological problems that I couldn't solve. I would, for example, I remember trying to figure out this question, uh, can, can you lose your salvation? This is the theological question that, that people cut their, thief, uh, cut their teeth on. And you say, on the one hand, the Bible talks about how if God's got you, he's got you. No one can take you from my hand, uh, Jesus says. But then on the other hand, you have these warnings. Uh, let he who thinks he stands beware lest he falls. The, uh, Alexander and Hymenaeus, they went out from us. Or Jesus says that the seed on the on the rocks, those who believe for a little while, but then they were uh, they fell away. So so how can both of these texts be true? Or I remember distinctly thinking about this with the doctrine of baptism, because I knew that grace alone saved us. We're saved by grace through faith and not by works, so that anyone could boast. And yet all the Bible passages that talked about baptism, talked about God's grace, God's goodness, God's mercy, God's kindness being given to us in baptism. In fact, there was even passages like 1 Peter 3.21 that says baptism saves you. And I, I couldn't sort that out. How could it, on the one hand, say we're saved by grace, and then over here it says that baptism saves us? Well, well, this runs all the way through the Scriptures. In fact, you, it even goes down to the most basic of questions. How are you to be saved? I mean, the, the the Bible will say on the one hand that we're saved by grace, and yet the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, how can I be saved? And he says, keep the commandments, sell everything you have, and give it to the poor. Now, how do you sort that out? The, these are um, theological knots that are particularly difficult to untie. And I remember spending hours, I, I'd love to hear if this is the experience that some of you have had, but I remember spending hours thinking about these things, in fact, agonizing over these things, not being able to understand what was going on, and it seemed to me like God's Word was locked up. But then, someone came along and says, you got to read the Bible this way, Brian. you got to see that in the Bible there are two words, the Word of the Law and the Word of the Gospel. Now, now both the Law and the Gospel are God's Word. Both are true. Both come from God, but they come with distinct purposes, distinct goals. The law is there to tell us what to do, to show us what God's will is. It's God's commands for us. The gospel, on the other hand, is nothing of the sort. It's God's promises. It's God's gifts. While the law tells us what to do, the gospel tells us what God has done. And the law, because it shows God's perfect righteousness, the law is there showing us our own sin, how we've fallen short. In fact, this is the chief purpose of the law, to expose us as sinners so that we know our need for the Savior. And then the gospel comes along, and it shows us our Savior. It shows us Jesus Christ. It shows us the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the law is always accusing us. The gospel is always forgiving us. The law is bringing death. The gospel is bringing life. The law is demanding perfect righteousness, but the gospel on the other side is giving perfect righteousness. Now, C.F.W. Walter, he was the first president, uh, kind of chief pastor of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and his most famous of all works is called The Proper Distinction Between Law and Gospel. And he starts out that book with this most astonishing statement, and just from memory, I'm not reading it for it, but he says something like this. When you start to study the Bible, you realize that there's no book in the world that contains as many contradictions as the Bible. Now, this is a shocking sort of way to start his series of lectures there. 
But he's, he's right. Because the law and the gospel stand side by side of each other all the way through the scriptures. And in one place, we have God's word of law. In another, God's word of gospel. In another, we have threats. In another, we have promises. In this place, we have accusations. In that place, we have uh, uh, the God's gifts and his comfort. And unless we know this distinction between law and gospel, the Bible remains a closed book. But when we start to read the Bible with that distinction in mind, when we start to ask the question, is this God's law or God's gospel? When we start to look at the text and say, is this God's threat or is this God's promise? Then the light is thrown on. In fact, uh, here's a, this is from the formula of Concord. This is the, the Lutheran doctrine on this. This is the book of Concord and what they say about it. It says, the distinction between the law and the gospel is an especially brilliant light that serves to the end that God's word may be rightly divided and the scriptures of the holy prophets and apostles may be properly explained and understood. So we must guard this distinction between law and gospel with special care in order that these two doctrines may not be mingled with one another or a law be made out of the gospel and the merit of Christ be obscured and troubled consciences robbed of, the, of their comfort which they otherwise have in the gospel when it's preached genuinely in its purity, and which Christians can support themselves in the most grievous trials against the terrors of the law. Now that picture, that the distinction between the law and the gospel is an especially brilliant light, is absolutely wonderful to consider. It's like if you've ever tried to find your way in the dark, uh, it's an absolute disaster. You know, you get your your toe stubbed over and over. In fact, I remember this time, I don't, not this didn't happen all the time, but I remember when I was a young man and I was, I was traveling in the Fiji Islands, this North Garden Island in Fiji, and I was by myself and I was checking out a particular campground for the company that I was working for, and and I had a cab had taken me into town, and and uh, by time uh, I finished dinner and the stuff I was doing in town, uh, the cab was taking me back out to the campground, and the cab driver was drunk off of his head. I mean, he was swerving all over the road. He, we almost went over over the cliff a couple of times. So finally I yelled at him to stop, and I got out, and I shoot him away. And there I was standing in the middle of the rainforest on the edge of this tiny little, uh, tiny little um, road uh, in the middle of Fiji. I had no idea where I was. And I knew that my campground was on the beach so that if I could go to the sound of the water and walk down the beach... Uh, I could, I would, I'd get to where I needed to go. Well, I walked into the rainforest, and it was pitch black, and it was this mango forest, and I'm wading through this swamp in the forest, and I'm, I'm stubbing my toe, I'm knocking my head, every sound is amplified, and I thought, this is going to be the end of me. I'm going to be, oh, it's in the forest, it's going to be over. But then I realized that I had in my backpack, I don't know if you guys remember this, they, there used to be these watches, and they had the indiglo on there. You know, you'd press it, and the face of the watch would light up. It wasn't very bright. It was just so you could see the face of the clock. But it was so dark in that forest that I, I took that little watch, and I used it as a flashlight to wade through the darkness. And I found my way to the beach, ended up finding myself way back to the camp, uh, made it back. Obviously, I, I lived through it to tell the story, which was fantastic. But that light... That, that, that lets you see through the darkness and make your way through all the dangers. That is the picture that the Lutheran confessions use for this distinction between law and gospel. That it illuminates 
the text of God's word. It shines a light on the things that Jesus is saying and the prophets and the apostles of Jesus are saying. So if you're not a Lutheran, I want to encourage you to meditate on this question. Is, are the words that I'm reading in the scriptures God's word of command and law or God's word of promise and gift and gospel? And one of the reasons that we want to keep that distinction so clear is so that the law can be kept, of, kept away from the gospel. You see, as soon as the law makes its way into the doctrine of the gospel, you no longer have the gospel. As soon as the gift of salvation is a combination of God's work and my work, in one way or another, even in the smallest way, then the whole gospel is lost. The and destroys it all, so that we can't say that salvation is Jesus and, even if it's Jesus 99% and me 1%. Jesus 99.99% and me one thousandth of a percentage. As long as there's an and after Jesus, the thing that matters is what comes after the and. If salvation is mostly grace and a little bit of works, then it's really a matter of works. If salvation is mostly Jesus and a little bit of my will, then the thing that matters is my will. If salvation is mostly the blood of Christ shed, but a little bit of my decision, then the thing that really matters is my decision. So we want to keep our works, our efforts, our deeds totally separate from the works of Christ. And then we have comfort. Another story, and then we'll go to break. I remember one time our serpentine belt broke. It was on our little Ford van, uh, and it was driving in the snow, but not far from the house. So Carrie walked back and said, nothing works, and I opened the hood, and I saw that the belt was broken. And, uh, and so I went to the store, and I bought the serpentine belt, and I came back, and I put the new belt in, and I drove it home, and everything worked fine. Power steering worked fine, and the alternator was working. Everything was working fine. The problem was it squealed. Now, I think it squealed a little bit. Carrie said it squealed a lot. In fact, Carrie, my wife, said, it sounds like there's five or six baby pigs being murdered under the hood. But anyway, the car worked, and I brought it back, and I said, hey, look, it works. But if you can believe it, my wife refused to drive the car. She said, I don't think it's fixed. I don't trust you. So I took the thing to a mechanic, and the mechanic apparently fixed it. It didn't squeal anymore, and Carrie was driving it. Now, imagine, if we can't be trusted to do something as simple as fix a serpentine belt, how in the world would you want to trust yourself with something like salvation? How in the world could you put the gift of salva of the forgiveness of sins into our own hands, in our own deeds, in our own works? No, you can't even imagine it. So keeping the law and the gospel separate from one another, keeping the law and the gospel distinct from one another, that's the better word, keeping them distinct, keeps our hands off of God's work of saving us. And when God is the one who's saving us, then he is the one who gets all the glory, and we are the ones who get all the comfort. So, the distinction between the law and the gospel, the height of knowledge in Christendom, the most brilliant light which throws open the windows to understand the whole scripture. God be praised for the distinction. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, and you are listening to Cross Defense. We're going to go to the break. See if we can get a hold of Pastor Warren Graff, who's going to surprise us with whatever he's been thinking about. So stay with us. We'll be back in just a minute.
Three things make a believer. Oratio, meditatio, tentatio. Prayer, meditation, and growth. Which is why every weekday morning from 7 to 8 a.m. we bring you Oratio, an hour of solace, contemplation, scripture, sacred music, and faith. Oratio, the dawn breaks with prayer every morning on Worldwide KFUO. I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Psalm 122, verse 1. Each weekday, the servants of God at the LCMS International Center gather together to receive the gifts of God in His Word. I invite you to join us weekdays, 10 a.m., for a live broadcast of daily chapel services on KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Concord Matters is a show seeking agreement in Christian confession. I'm Pastor Charles Henriksen, one of the hosts of Concord Matters, heard on Worldwide KFUO each Tuesday at 2 p.m. Central and a repeat on Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. Central. We take an in-depth look at the Book of Concord with some fine Lutheran theologians. Concord Matters, live on Tuesdays at 2 p.m. on Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news. Hi, I'm Mary Schmidt, Development Manager for KFUO. Do you want a simple and convenient way of making planned gifts to KFUO Radio? A donor-advised fund allows you to choose the timing and amount of your gift, along with making gifts to other ministries. If you have questions about donor-advised funds or other planned gifts, call me at 314-996-1518. We'll meet with you to answer your questions about donor-advised funds to your radio station, Worldwide KFUO. Bow, now. Welcome back to Cross Defense. Pastor Brian Wolfmuller of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado, uh, talking about the law and the gospel, theology, the joy of God's word, and how to think and act and feel, how to hear and listen as a Christian in today's world. And to help me with that, oh boy, I'm slightly nervous now that I realize who's coming on. To help me with that is Pastor Warren Graff, pastor of Grace Lutheran Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. My pastor, at least one of them. I've got a whole troop of pastors that help keep me in line. Uh, pastor Graf, welcome to the welcome to the show, Cross Defense. Thank you. Good afternoon. Good to have you with us. I always enjoy our conversations, so this is just now we're just to have a conversation live on the radio for everyone to listen to, which is great. And uh, and. Yeah, all sorts of potential for failure here. Yeah, I know, I know. If the first segment wasn't dangerous enough, a monologue. Now here we here we go into extra risk. Uh, now I, I I gave you the assignment of finding something that you are curious about or interested in, and throwing it into the soup. So what do you got for us? Something that's been in the news. Probably most most of your listeners have uh, read about it a little bit here or there, but it is California. Assembly Bill 2943. I'm sure you know exactly what that's about. I was just reading about it in my morning devotions uh, this morning. Is this the one where they said that um, you cannot give therapy to someone who wants to not be homosexual? Is that the, is that the idea? It, it is. Um, and I think it's interesting for us Christians to think about it, just not of whether or not it's good, um, it's good public policy, but with regard to what what we can say about natural law, uh, what we can say about um, uh, the the health of society, even apart from the gospel. 
But yeah, so the assembly bill is the uh, the quote in it is it criminalizes and, and notice the word. It, I mean, it's it's a criminal offense. Uh, any transaction intended to result or that results in the sale or lease of goods or services to any consumer that consists of advertising, offering to engage in, or engaging in sexual orientation change efforts with an individual. So that's where the sexual orientation change effort is in the bill as any practice that seeks to change an individual's sexual orientation. This includes efforts to change behaviors or gender expressions or to eliminate or reduce sexual or romantic attractions or feelings toward individuals of the same sex. What, what that... Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. Wait, I got, I got a clarifying thing there because what I wondered is, what if I was, for example, a straight man and I wanted to be gay? Could I, could I hire someone to help me with that? And, and I, and it seemed like both of those would be criminalized, but apparently that, that last line says no. It's only trying to change someone who has a same-sex attraction, according to the language of the law. If you have a, if you have a different sex attraction. You are open for conversion therapy. Am I? Did I hear that right? No, I, I think that is right. It, the, the law, is, as some of the commentators have noted, the, the law is very open to to different interpretations. I think what you said is just right by the letter of the law, but it is one of those wow. laws that's uh, the people putting it up on the floor uh, at the California Assembly are promising that it will not affect, for instance, the sale of Bibles, will not affect the sale of Christian materials, but. But in case the listener hasn't kept up on this, really what it is saying is that, for instance, if, if a Christian pastor, um, if a Christian um, neighbor, if someone comes and says, I, uh, what, I'm, I feel tempted to um, have lust for a fellow male, for instance, so a homosexual temptation, and, and now, quickly, you know, as Christians, we would say, um, okay, that's a temptation unto sin. It's not worse, uh, it's not in that way qualitatively different than a Christian male having sinful lust for a female. Both of them are, are against our Lord's gift of the man and woman given to be uh, married and, and have their sexual concourse in that marriage bonding. But, but if this person comes and says, um, I'm, I have lustful desires for another man, and he's speaking to a Christian pastor, and he says to the Christian pastor, uh, can you help me, or tell me, tell me what my Lord's Word might give me on this. Now, you know, it's going to take a lot of conversation, but obviously at the end of the day, with any sin, we would want to have the Christian in the comfort of, repentance and forgiveness and the comfort of daily putting the old atom of sin to death in repentance and the new man the 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 man of faith the man of righteousness uh rising to stand before the lord now this is true for for any sin and yet this bill would be saying that if the christian pastor says something along those lines of um let's consider how our lord gives his gift of sexuality, let's consider our Lord's gift of marriage of man and woman, let's consider our Lord's gift of chastity outside of marriage. As soon as a Christian pastor says that, uh, he is now a criminal because he is leading this man with a same-sex, so-called same-sex attraction. Uh, he's leading him away from that. 
Now, in Christian vernacular, we would say, well, yeah, that's repentance and forgiveness. But to this bill, it's it's a crime. Does the bill, just to speak of the bill a little bit, does the bill speak of the motivation behind it? Or is did you find any discussion about the purpose of the bill? Were they able to speak clearly about why this is important? Well, I... In, in looking at the stories surrounding it, you, you get some language of, um, let, let me see, I ran across one, going back even to, this is a bill that was passed um, in, in California a year ago, where if, if you're a Christian university, Christian college or whatever, um, you can't receive a government exemption, tax exemption, if you're teaching Christian doctrine regarding things of marriage and sex but what what one of the um let me see one of the students said this is an aaron andrews so this is in this is in cbs news um so it's public aaron andrews 35 a senior at biola university so christian university um aaron identifies as a gay christian whatever that would mean organized a protest this year against her school's request for title nine exemption she believes Biola is violating its own Christian principles by not being open and accepting, and she calls the bill a stepping stone for the LGBT community. Uh, we're at a Christian university. We're all sinners, said Andrews, who is president of the Biola um, Equal Ground Group. If you're going to protect a certain group of sinners, you need to protect us all. So it, it's surrounded with language like that of if you want to speak of the Lord's gift of man and woman in marriage and the Lord's gift of uh, living a chaste life, then to put it into her language, it's not that you are standing for something. It's not that you're holding forth for, say, natural law. Rather, it's that you're trying to discriminate against her. So so it, very, it makes it personal. It makes an attack on her. And so now when we come up to this new bill this year, uh, a year later, or a year and a half later, that is saying that you can't counsel or sell or advertise or anything else under under criminal uh, threat, anything that would lead a person uh, toward the Lord's gifts of marriage or toward the Lord's gifts of understanding what man and woman are, then anything you do like that is going to be a personal attack. This seems like a, there's a degree of insanity here. I mean, so it's not only would this be critiqued by the scripture and also by natural law, but just by sort of plain common sense because so let's just let's just ask if if a if a person is that say there's a man who has uh homosexual temptations identifies as a gay man right. what this law is saying is he is he is not allowed to want to be any different or right. if he if he wants to be any different nobody is allowed to help him correct even if he comes to me just out of curiosity even if he were to say uh, I identify myself as being a gay man. I want to remain a gay man, but I do have some doubts or there are some things that are kind of bothering me. Could I at least ask you, as a Christian, what is your opinion of these things? I would like to hear what you have to say. Well, under under criminal penalty, um, we we can't sit there and say that, what, any lust in the heart, apart from um, the, the Lord giving us the gift of man and woman in marriage, any lust in the heart is is adultery before the Lord's eyes. I cannot tell him that under under this 
criminal law. What it's how is this not simply plainly discriminating against chiefly the homosexual community in California? I mean, aren't they the object of this? They're the ones whose whose rights, I suppose, are being infringed by this law. Is that am I? How how does that not very obvious? Am I seeing this well, the wrong I way? Because you and I are using words like rights, and I think you know that 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 has good American pedigree, and we should be at ease with that. But they're using words like rights rather not to mean a negative right. In other words, a negative right is that you can't take away my ability to speak. You can't take away my ability to use my private property, let's say. You know, but, but what they see is a positive right. In other words, it's an exercise of power. And so anytime you, you uh, are resistant to that, then it has to be power meeting power, and you have, they have to destroy the, the opponent. R- remember that when Justice Kennedy wrote the, the, the Supreme Court, he wrote the, uh, majority, dis- the uh, majority opinion when the Supreme Court passed the new law, and, and I know that's not considered the right terminology, but it was a law we've never had before, and then the Supreme Court made it. So, um, so in, in a sense, they did pass a law that says that states must marry, you know, men to men and women to women, and et cetera. And the language that Justice Kennedy used, he didn't base it on anything. He used no basis of natural law. He didn't use any basis of American law. He didn't use any basis of, like, English common law, going back to, say, Magna Carta. He didn't use anything of, of law and precedent. The language he used was that those who would deny homosexual marriage. So he puts it into that construct, those who would deny homosexual marriage. So we're not standing for true marriage or natural marriage. We're standing against homosexual marriage. And then the word he uses is that, it, that we are disparaging our fellow citizen. So he uses this, this language of personal attack. Um, it would be like if I'm, if I'm saying I think marijuana should be illegal. Now, you know, that's a good maybe policy discussion, a policy argument that should be had. But if I say I think marijuana should be illegal and someone says, well, you're disparaging me because I smoke marijuana. And, of course, I'd want to say, no, I'm not disparaging you. I'm trying to make a policy statement about what's, what's good and, and healthy under our law. But, but once Kennedy put it under that, which is not really precedented in a lot of Supreme Court decisions, Usually they're based on law or based on the Constitution. So now we have homosexual marriage, and it's put into this personal construct of any time you say anything negative about anything uh, of, of um, homosexual temptation or whatever, you are disparaging your fellow citizen. The disparaging is a preaching word. I mean, um, right? it's a theological word, really. And, and how does it... So would I be right in saying, when you forbid disparaging, what you're really after is you you want to silence the preaching of the law? Yeah. I mean, is, is that is that as simple as it is? Well, yeah. Okay. So now let me take a bit of a jump of how I think we how, how we're given to look at this, and if I can, let me pull in some of Luther on natural law. All right, because I'm ready. Yeah, Luther uses the he uses the word um, the the two the two German words for natural law and the the document 
that I'm looking at is named How Christians Should Regard Moses. And it's a, it's a nice, it's, a, it's um, what, seven or eight pages long. It actually came from a sermon that he gave, and then I, if I remember right, he kind of rewrote it to, to make it into this, um, this little document. But it's how Christians should regard Moses. And, and the question before Luther at that time was, of course, not something like um, homosexual marriage or, or something of that sort. But the question before him were the uh, enthusiasts, Karl Stott and, and, and others, who were trying to use Mosaic law to control the Christian life. And now this is something that Paul's been through already, where you know he said that he had to confront Peter face to face because Peter was trying to put Gentiles under the Jewish law. You know things of do not eat pork, be circumcised, etc. And Paul said no, and Peter ended up agreeing completely with Paul because they both came to a clear enunciation of the gospel. But what Luther writes is that he he puts. Moses in in the proper place for the Christian, because we have this thing of Moses, where Moses is a prophet of the Lord, and Moses is giving law from God, including things like you can't eat pork, or you must worship on the Sabbath. And now how are you and I, after Pentecost, to read that? And so if I can, just a little bit of... of, um, what Luther writes here, he speaks of a natural law that what he actually says is that the Ten Commandments are not instructive to you and me as the Ten Commandments. They're instructive to you and me as a mirror that is reflecting natural law. In other words, Moses gave them to the Jews, but you and I are not Jews, we're Gentiles, and there is this natural law that the Ten Commandments are a enunciation of for the Jews. So that that means that when we run across something like you shall uh, worship, you know, keep, keep the Sabbath holy, then we're to understand it as that is how it is applied to the Jews, but the way it is applied to us after Pentecost, where Jesus has already said, I am your Sabbath. You know, that come, come unto me, you are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And of course, if he had said that in if he said that in Hebrew or in Aramaic, it would have been um, the word "Come unto me, and I I will give you your Sabbath." So, to you and me, Sabbath rest is the word of gospel. It is as the Catechism has it. We we hold on to this word, and we we um, gladly hear and learn it. We hold it sacred. That's the Sabbath rest. But what what Luther writes is, the law of Moses has its place. It is no longer binding on us because it was given only to the people of Israel. And Israel accepted this law for itself and its descendants, while the Gentiles were excluded. To be sure, Gentiles have certain laws in common with the Jews, such as these. There is one God. No one is to do wrong to another. No one is to commit adultery or murder or steal, and others like them. This is written by nature into our hearts. They did not hear it straight from heaven, as did the Jews. And then, and then later he talks about how we will regard Moses as a teacher, but we will not regard him as our lawgiver unless he agrees with both the New Testament and the natural law. So, and, and Luther has more statements on this of, of, you know, the natural law being written on our hearts, etc. But what that means is that every culture has had 
the Ten Commandments in the form of natural law is just the, the blessing of the Ten Commandments to Israel is that they are there in a simple, what clear, defined form. But everyone, even all of Israel's neighbors, know that you're not supposed to murder or know now, that you're not. Yeah. Yeah. So now, so we we got to go to a break, but we got to come back and we got to connect these dots. So, so to wrap, so to to put a bow on the natural law. To yeah. say that everybody has it, and, and that that is when we come as Christians to look at these questions that we have of law and marriage and stuff like that, that we can come at it not just from the scriptures, right, but from, from natural law, and we could bring the preaching of natural law to bear on all people for the good of society. That's, I think that's, yeah. let's, let's push in that direction after the break. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, uh, joined by Pastor Warren Graff of Grace Lutheran Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, you're listening to Cross Defense. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Bart Day, President and CEO of the Lutheran Church Extension Fund. I wanted to take a moment today to say thank you to all the faithful servants of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. The Lutheran Church Extension Fund family is proud to support the individuals, congregations, schools, and other organizations of the Synod who carry on the great work of the Lutheran Reformation. In honor of Reformation 500, we recognize you and your service. We are proud to be a part of such a steadfast legacy. May God continue to richly bless you. A long-standing tradition here at Worldwide KFUO is to broadcast live worship services for those unable to attend worship or for those who benefit from hearing God's Word online or on KFUO. This Sunday, our 8.15 a.m. worship comes from Ascension Lutheran Church in St. Louis, Missouri, where Reverend Matthew Clark presides as senior pastor. Our 10.45 worship comes from Hope Lutheran Church in St. Anne, Missouri, where Reverend Timothy Ostermeyer presides as senior pastor. Come worship with us on Sunday mornings on Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news. To engage with the Bible is to understand its legacy, one that's been going on for over 2,000 years. When Alexander the Great conquered the Persian Empire in the late 4th century BC, Jerusalem and its territories fell under the rule of Greek-speaking overlords, a language and culture shaping the area for centuries to come. Legend has it that a son of one of Alexander's generals and ruler of Egypt devoted himself to gathering in his famous library at Alexandria all the books of the world. When an advisor told him the laws of the Jews are worth transcribing and deserve a place in your library, Jewish scrolls were sent from Jerusalem to Alexandria. Seventy-two scholars were employed, and they produced their Greek translation in just 72 days. Thus, the name Septuagint, 70 in Greek, became a term for the Greek version of the Hebrew texts. Engage with the Bible. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible. Welcome back to CrossFit. Pastor Brian Wolfmuller here of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. Co-host of Table Talk Radio, although I hate to admit that. I've been <laughs> posting up some YouTube videos lately. All this stuff ends up at wolfmuller.co. Uh, in fact, today is Martyr Monday. I just put up a video about Romanus. Pastor Graf, do you know, do you know, does that ring a bell, the martyr Romanus? No. He's this guy, he was under Diocletian, the 10th persecution. He, I, this is, it's almost, almost brings a tear to your eye, especially a child gets involved in his martyrdom, but 
but he's the guy that he was there preaching the eternality of Christ and the gospel to the to the prefect who was who was torturing him. And the guy says, "Punch out his teeth," so he can stop preaching the gospel. He punched out his teeth. He he still preaches the gospel. So so then they he says he, they say mutilate his face. So they tear out his hair. They tear out his beard. They cut open his cheeks with a sword. Pull the skin off his face. And he turns to the prefect and he says, I thank you, uh, Lord, uh, you know, sir, for giving me more mouths to praise my God. Oh, <laughs> uh, whoa. And, uh, and I was going to call and arrange for a dental appointment today, but I may put that off. <laughs> he ends up, they cut out his tongue. He goes to jail. They try to burn him, but legend says the, a storm put out the fire. So they strangled him to death in his jail cell. That's Romanus. I can't, these stories are just incredible. Um, I had not heard that. Wow. Anyway, I, I tell that story today on YouTube. So if people are interested in the story of St. Romanus, you can search for Martyr Monday, the YouTube channel. Search for Wolfmuller on there. Uh, it's a, it's in a really it's compelling, and it's, um, it's encouraging, I think, in the best sense. I mean, it gives us courage to think that, you know, we are part of those who the, those that have gone before us and have shed their blood for the faith that we confess. It gives us that that courage. Um, now they were. Mm -hmm. it's, what's interesting to me, they were persecuted for their faith in Christ. It seems like the, the persecution that we have today is around. We they confess that Jesus is Lord. We confess that God is Creator, and that's where the persecution comes. That's what we're talking about. We before the break, we were talking about. Um, the the new laws uh, what was it Senate Bill twenty three or something um, yeah I, I um I'll tell you, I I'm not sure though that 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 distinction of God as Creator and um and confessing the cross is that clear because I think that what is at stake here so with with the with the natural law we would think that it is the because of the orders of creation at stake that it is God as Creator that is getting us into turmoil with our culture. I think, though, we should say, no, it really is the cross, because the, the natural law is no, is no clearer seen anywhere than at the cross, because that is the lex talionis. That is the law of retribution. That's the fullness of the natural law. And so that when you and I look at the cross, we are seeing our sin more clearly there than we can see it anywhere else. So when we're proclaiming the cross, as that goes out into our culture, we're proclaiming something that is showing the law of retribution in its fullness, and we better know that our culture is going to find ways to say, you can't say that. This is, so this punching out the teeth of Romanus there, this, this is really what this, this say, the law is doing the same sort of thing. It's saying, hey, stop preaching. You can't, you can't yeah. disparage somebody for liking what they like, loving what they love, doing what yeah. they want to do in private. It's the same, that's the same it, it, activity. It is, a, it is the same. And and if it were only, if at stake were only the natural law and not the cross, then we would be ourselves admitting that the one who died on the cross is not our creator. So because the one who died on the cross is the creator of all things, the word sent forth from the Father, then Anytime we're proclaiming creation, we're proclaiming the one who died on the cross, and that's what must be shut down by those in our culture who don't want to hear um, the law of retribution. Mm, so, so this is 
Now, this is very interesting. So here, natural law, so natural law, it, it, not, it shows us what's right. I mean, so natural law can say, hey, you, you yeah. know, you, you can survive on your own by yourself. You know, you can eat and sleep and brush your teeth, but the human race cannot survive if men are alone. Uh, there has to be marriage for humanity to, right. to survive. So natural law preaches marriage to us, and because it preaches marriage, it also preaches, it, it preaches, uh, it, it preaches an accusing sermon to those who would deny what marriage is. Is that yes? In that way, if if you just want to boil it down and say in, in what a very simple statement, what is natural law? Without getting into to all the different ways it was enunciated by different philosophers and such. But what is natural law? It is a concern for what is beneficial for the species. Now, that, that, those are cold words, you know, because we're, we're taught to use words of using our names and loving our neighbor. But, but if we just want to say what is natural law, it's what is beneficial for the health, the ongoing health of the species. So in natural law, you cannot have stealing because if we don't have private property and private wealth, then when you plant your corn in your field, I will steal it from you. And if I steal it from you, then you're not going to plant any corn next year, which means the species is going to starve to death. So natural law says there's private property, there's private wealth, it must be protected. And that man who just plowed 10 acres of corn, no one can take that corn from him unless they make a willing contract with him. So all of a sudden in natural law we have, you shall not steal, which is of course a commandment. You shall not covet then. So when I see you growing your corn, and I don't have any corn because I was watching football when I should have been planting corn, um, then I shouldn't covet your corn. Maybe I should go to you and ask you for mercy if you can give me some corn. But, but that's a lot different than me saying that corn does not belong to you. So we have you shall not steal, you shall not covet, you shall not take someone else's name um, you, you shall not slander because it has to do with contracts and honoring people in court. And you, um, marriage is a man and a woman because you can have two men together doing sexual things, I guess, but you're not going to get any life from it. It will not bring forth the life of the species. And so marriage is a man and a woman which brings forth new life. It's not only a man and a woman. It's a man and a woman bound together in oneness, because that is the healthiest, the strongest way to bring up children, where both parents are equally invested in these children, as opposed to, um, you know, a mother with, with five different fathers, and none of them are really invested in the family, let's say. So by natural law, we can say, sure, that there's a reason why all healthy cultures have had the marriage of man and woman. And now when we have our culture saying, if you say that a man can't marry a man, you're disparaging uh, your name, then we can see that what is under attack is natural law. But because natural law is what's under attack, what is under attack is the Creator who shed his blood to atone for our sins against the law. So, so if I can say, so because natural law preaches the law, I mean, it, 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 it comes with an accusing voice, and, mm -hmm. and I don't want to be accused. So, so okay, let me, maybe let me t attack it from this direction see, and see if this is, is right. I, I've been thinking lately about how 
temptation comes to us in a number of waves. So we normally think of temptation simply to sin. But really the 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 second wave is where the devil really gets after us. He tempts us to sin, but then comes in wave 2 of temptation, which is how do you think of that sin? Yes. And that and that how you think of the sin, how you consider the sin, how you place the sin uh, in, in relationship to your name, God's name, the neighbor's name, and etc., that's where you start to develop a theology or a doctrine or a teaching. Now, because yeah. natural law is showing me this sin, hey, this doesn't bring forth life, uh, now I'm tempted to think of that sin or, or, or to, to respond to that, not by confessing it, to look for forgiveness for it, but rather defending it and defending it at all costs. So that no one can come and say that this thing is in fact a sin, right? So defending it, because I think what you've drawn, the picture you've drawn, is the picture that our Lord gives us of um, the, the of our conscience and the conversation of our conscience, which is the conversation of the heavenly courtroom. So that my problem is not that I sin. My problem is that I sin, and I don't want to hear the Lord's word of forgiveness. I don't want to hear the judge say, I forgive you. So instead, I will try to justify myself, which means in my conscience and in the heavenly courtroom, my argument becomes the prosecutor is a jerk. The prosecutor is <laughs> trying to get me. And the prosecutor is trying to disparage me. When mm. really what the Lord would have me do is say, yes. The law is right. I've looked in the mirror, and it's not good. Is there any mercy for me? And, of course, there the judge is on the heavenly throne saying, there's nothing but mercy for you. You are justified. You are free from, from all accusation in your conscience. But that is the conversation of the cross, the atoning blood of the cross presented in the heavenly throne room. That is the conversation that our culture then is telling us we can't make known. So how does could just contrast that? So here, so this is beautiful because we so to go into the into the court of of our conscience as yeah. a reflection of the heavenly court. I go in there. The first thing you do when you go to court is you make uh, you declare yourself to be innocent or to be guilty. And yeah. the scriptures, with taught by Moses and by Jesus Himself, taught by the law, we go into that court and we say we're guilty. And now all of a sudden, we have Jesus as our advocate. And he presents the evidence, not of our good works, but rather the evidence of his blood. And based on the presentation of that evidence, we are declared righteous, justification. But the world would shape it up opposite. We go into that court and we say, innocent, I am innocent. And anyone who would say, anyone who would bring evidence of my guilt has to be declared in contempt of court. Because this entire court has been shaped up to defend my own accusation, or, or sorry, my own, what is that called? My own declaration of my own innocence. Right. So, so that the whole, the whole courtroom conversation is what must be denied in, in, our, in, in what we see going on in our culture. So that if I say, I don't think it's good, I think it is wrong, and, and you know, in... in in the way our Lord gives it, I, it is a sin for a man to have lust for a man. That conversation, those charges are not allowed. Now, again, b by the way, it, we should, you know, as Christians, we should say that the same thing is, is to be said of a man's lust for a woman. So 
um, when you, you know, if, if you've had lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery, as Jesus says. So it's not as if, I mean, we're here talking about a man's lust for a man because that's what these, these laws in California are uh, pressing for. But as Christians, we can say, no, this, this sin belongs equally to all of us. How interesting that if I'm, a, say I'm a man living in California, and I have lust for someone who's not my wife, could I go and talk to someone and say, hey, I don't want to lust in that way, and could they help me still? Is that, is that still legal? If, if I'm reading the last line of this, of this law right, of the, of the bill, it's not a law yet, but if so I'm reading the, the last line of it, I think that would be, a Christian could still address that and say, you know, yes, brother, let me let me um, converse with you and help you with this travail you're having because of your lust for a woman other than your wife. I think we could still have that conversation without being criminal. Because what it reads is, this includes efforts to change behaviors or gender expressions or to eliminate or reduce sexual or romantic attractions or feelings toward individuals of the same sex. So depending on where you... I, the, the sentence could be read both ways, because it talks about general behaviors overall, but then it takes it to the specificity. But it could be that they're saying that it's okay for me to preach, that it's wrong to have lust for a woman um, outside of marriage, or, or however we want to put that. It's, it's wrong to have desires for a woman other than your wife. That's okay for us to preach, but we cannot preach it's wrong for you to have lust for a man. Hmm. So, oh. so th- what th- what this law really is doing is saying if you are uh, a, a man that has lust for another man, not only do you have to have that, but you have to like it. <laughs> you can't you can't fight against right. it. We have only uh, the, crazy. We have only a minute and a half left or something. So um, so I want to make sure that uh, we we, t- we kind of tie a bow on the topic. What um, is there anything that we haven't covered that you think is important for us to th- to think about this? Well, maybe not, except that I would say that um, this, what, what Luther brings forth with his clarity of natural law, and of course in, in Lutheran circles I think we rightly say often, let's talk not so much about natural law but orders of creation. And, and, and I, I think that's right because we're recognizing a creator who is giving good order to bringing forth all the produce of creation. But Luther does use the word natural law, and I think we can say that language of orders of creation are not going to help us in conversing with our neighbor who doesn't believe in a creator, let's say. But it is something then where, as Christians, maybe we do need to reinforce ourselves on this language that a Christian neighbor can understand, but also an atheist neighbor or, you know, et cetera, that there is a natural law. And here's a simple way that, that I that I've said that you can make that, even to someone who says, no, I don't believe in natural law. As soon as someone says, I don't believe in natural law, I can say, well, then good. I'm going to walk into your house and steal your TV. (laughs) That's Because there's no law against it. So obviously they believe there's a natural law if they stop me from stealing their TV. So now we all believe in natural law. Now we can just talk about, okay, what is it that, what uh, forms up natural law? What is it that teaches us what it is? Pastor Warren Graff of Grace Lutheran Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Thank you so much. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado on Cross Defense. Even the natural law accuses. In our conscience, it accuses us. 
But Jesus stands there and he says, I forgive you all your sins. And that is the final word that we all want to hear. God's peace be with you. We'll be back next week. Thank you, Brian. You've been listening to Cross Defense, produced by Worldwide KFUO, the official broadcast ministry of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Your support is vital for this program to continue. To learn about giving opportunities, call Mary at 314-996-1518. Or you can make a gift safe, secure, and easily online at kfuo.org. Thank you for listening and supporting Cross Defense on Worldwide KFUO.